Good morning. My name is Trudy Hayes. Our first reading is from the book of 1 John, chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not with us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The word of the Lord. Be to God. That good? So I had a whole liturgical dance plan that I was going to move, but I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm really sorry that I have to keep coming this summer. Maybe I'll pull that back together. Okay, so again, uh, I'm Dean Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here and delighted to be with you. And um, raise your hand if you're excited about summer. Okay, raise your hand if you feel like you have some embedded lived knowledge about summer like if I was to say to you, help me live summer well, you, ha- you would have some nugget you could share with somebody here, right? Like sunscreen, right? Like probably important. You're probably looking at me thinking, oh, for you, my friend, really important. <laughs> but sunscreen might be embedded. Or raise your hand if you think Slurpees should be a regular part of a summer diet. Okay. Oh, that's a smaller number than I would have hoped. Um, maybe it's wearing a hat. Maybe it's where you go, the beach, whatever, Right? Think about some summer experience, lived, learned summer experience you have that's so important you would want to share it. You would be urgently, you'd see somebody and think, I need to tell them about this because they don't know. One of mine would probably be, as I think about when I was a little kid, would be like, don't run or horse around next to a pool. Don't run or horse around next to a pool because I have some lived, learned experience about that. Um, I have had many concussions particularly as a kid. Some of you are like, we can tell. Um, But I had two particular ones from horsing around or or messing around next to a pool where I I bounced on the pool and then went into the water. And I I can remember both. remember being in the water and coming up. And I'd had enough concussions both times to to know I am having a concussion. You can pray for my mom who's still in therapy probably for all of this. because then what I did is I didn't tell anyone because I knew, well, well, you've had one before. You should just probably go sleep it off, which for those of you in the medical profession know that's the, wrong, the exact wrong thing to do. Um, so when I see someone running a horse around in a pool, I'm like, that's probably not a great idea because that's lived, learned experience. 
And it, it might be so important that if I was at a pool and I saw some people doing a little too much, I'd think, hey, you probably don't want to do that. Not that they'd want to hear me say it, right? We're, we're beginning a series this morning for the rest of the summer in the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we'll be looking at these letters all the way up to Labor Day, right through the end of August. And you can pick up a reading card on your way out if you want to read along. You'll see that basically what we're doing most of the summer is reading um, a chapter a day, Monday through Friday, of 1st John, which has five chapters. And then we'll do 2nd and 3rd John on the back end of the summer in August. So really it's reading through those five chapters, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for essentially the rest of the summer. So you can miss a day, come back, you can read all five if you need to, but it's sort of a, an immersion into these letters of John. And what John is doing in these letters, particularly in this first letter, is sharing from his lived, learned experience something super important, something that's changed his life. And it's so important, he's going to share and instruct other people about it because he's, he's concerned. They're about to bounce off the side of the pool into the water. And he wants to get out in front of them. So this morning we're going to do a sort of a broad introduction to the, all the letters, particularly to 1 John with some finishing on just a couple major things to think about as we usher our, our summer into immersing into these beautiful, beautiful letters from John. Again, these are written, we believe, by John the Apostle. John the Apostle has written a lot of our New Testament. So he wrote the Gospel of John and all three of these letters. And then, of course, the last book of the New Testament, which is the book of Revelation, right? We believe John was probably the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He's called the disciple Jesus loved. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't love the other disciples. I'm sure they were all like, hey, Jesus loved me too. But he had a particular affection for John. We think that he probably lived the longest of the other disciples. He died probably late 90s A.D., some believe he was martyred by the Emperor Trajan. Others believe that he may have died actually of old age, which would make him, I think, the old, only disciple to die of old age. And we can sort of track him through that century. He was with Jesus, obviously, at Jesus' death and resurrection and the days Jesus was with the disciples before he ascended. We believe he stayed in Jerusalem for several years. He was taking care of Jesus' mother, Mary, right? Because Jesus tasked John with taking care of his mother on the cross. He ended up in Ephesus, Asia Minor, which is now in Turkey, probably either, some believe, either late 30s to mid 40s A.D. and then used that as a home base, or may have stayed in Jerusalem and ended up in Ephesus more late 60s, early 70 A.D. But you can go now, and there's a basilica built over what we believe is the place where he was buried. It was a small church in the second century. Now it's a basilica built by, um, Making sure I get the name on this one right. Justinian, sorry, in the 6th century A.D. There's actually a little house, we, at least through history, passed down that may have been where Mary lived and died. And you can, if you've ever been to Ephesus, it's a beautifully reconstructed site. You can walk it and really think about Jesus' mom, Mary, and John were here on these roads. It's pretty fascinating. So John's writing three letters near the end of the first century, and they're, think of them sort of big to small. The first one is an encyclical, a pastoral letter that's going to go around to all the churches in Asia Minor. If you could put that slide up, that'd be great. The second is a more particular letter to a particular church. So several churches, one particular church for 2 John, and then one particular personal situation for 3 John. So they start out here and kind of work their way down in the three different letters. This, again, is John. He's writing 
He's a, sort of the first bishop of that area in many ways. He was exiled for eight years on Patmos. We know that from our time in Revelation a few years ago. And he's back off Patmos, we believe, now back in Ephesus. And he's writing these three letters, which begs the question, right? Why? Why write these letters? What's he doing? John's writing to this young church he loves, which has faced lots of external and internal pressures over the years, but particularly some of the external were people like Nero, people like the persecution, and then the total desolation of Jerusalem. But this is back to our internal struggles. And what's happened is there are some false teachers who've been going through teaching these churches and begin to separate the actual bodies out. Come be with us in our particular way to understand Christianity and Jesus. This is the way to live. And what these false prophets are teaching is this claim that they have a special anointing of the Holy Spirit, the special true knowledge of God. It's the beginnings of what we now would call Gnosticism, which is from the Greek word gnosis, to know. They're saying we have a higher knowledge that not everybody's going to get, so only a few of us might be really part of this higher spirituality. We're going to ignore the historicity of Jesus. Remember, there are people alive, like John, who really knew Jesus as a friend. We're going to ignore that. We're going to ignore Christian revelation and all the Old Testament. And instead, we're going to reinterpret the news of Jesus from this intellectual standpoint. Here's this advanced learning. That's so parochial. That's what people in Galilee believed. We believe this higher knowledge. If you want to know deep spirituality, come be a part of our group. It's very exclusive, very separating. It reminds me of a joke my dad used to tell. He used to love to say to friends, hey, did you hear about the letter Jesus wrote? And inevitably people would say no, and he would say, oh, you must not have gotten it. Ba-doom, Okay, because if you'd say, well, have you heard about the special knowledge? And you and I would say no, and they'd say, oh, you must not be a part of the special recipients of this knowledge. So as we read John, you're going to see him emphasize and use this word knowledge again and again and again. And he's going to call us to a true knowledge of God. He's going to use that phrase in chapter 2 a couple of times, four times in chapter 3, again in chapter 4, and again in chapter 5. He's going to be presenting what real knowledge of Jesus is in contrast to this false knowledge. One of the opponents John had was a man named Serenthius, a Jewish teacher from Egypt who settled in Ephesus. And Serenthus particularly was a, a, a strong teacher of this Gnosticism. He threw out the Old Testament, mostly. He didn't like the letters of Paul. He only liked little bits of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And he was a part of creating some of these two major themes of Gnosticism. If you could put that next slide up, Mike. The first, again, is this exaltation of the mind, and the mind is the way to deep spirituality. Speculate, ruminate, think about, be a part of the educated elite. Get the special letter from Jesus to the Christians. The second major theme is this conviction that matter, that the world, physicality, is essentially evil, and that the physical world is the product of an evil power. Not the product or the gift of a good, loving creator who embedded you and I in the world to love the world. Not receiving a gift of life and beauty, but rather here's this earth that's sweaty and dirty and kind of gross sometimes, and that clearly couldn't be a part of what a deeper life with God would be like. 
Now, you can see where the Gnostics might have been tempted by this, right? Like, we've talked the last few weeks, particularly on Sundays here, that how life can be hard. Life in this world can be hard. So it would be easier and simpler than to just say, well, it must, uh, I don't want any part of that. There must be something wrong with this world. It must be evil. And if it's evil, then probably whoever made it is evil. And then it's not a long half skip and a jump to whoever made it must be evil too, and we wouldn't want anything to do with him. There must be another way. Now, these conclusions become a problem for the early church in a couple ways that John's going to highlight. Again, if you put that slide up, Mike. First, these heretics or these secessionists, which is the word often commentators use as you read about these chapters, are denying the incarnation of Jesus. Denying that Jesus came in the flesh because if flesh is evil or wrong or gross, we wouldn't expect a Messiah to come and be in the flesh. Why would a supreme deity condescend to become human? Now, to get around the obvious historicity of Christ, people like Serentheus then would propound a theory that became known as deceticism, which is the Greek word for seem or appear. And so what they would say is, well, Jesus appeared like a human. Some of the talk was that he was a phantom. So there was a physical body going around that was covered by a phantom or the phantom itself that Jesus was on earth. He did not then become truly human. He only seemed to have human form. Others said, okay, there probably was a body, some guy named Jesus, but the Christ, the Messiah, came down and sort of covered this guy Jesus between the baptism of Jesus and before the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So the Christ kind of was a frame, again, almost phantom-like, that was around this physical body, Jesus, but then left. Why? Because God would never be in the flesh to die for us. So we must not have been a part of that guy on the cross. Some even propose that that guy on the cross ended up being Simon of Cyrene, the man we read about who helps carry the cross to the hill of Golgotha with Jesus. The deepest frustration, again, here is dealing with the world and earth, and could Jesus really come and die for you and me? He either you can see the polarities we often hear. He either was just a human, a nice guy, good teacher, or maybe some removed spiritual figure. Now, this view attacked Jesus' own claims that he was the Son of God and the Son of Man. They also attacked the reality of his suffering. Part of what Gnostics struggled with was the any belief that a God would want to suffer and experience shame or pain on your and my behalf. And for a Gnostic, redemption didn't involve a redeemed body like we see Jesus have and you and I are promised, but a separation from our body. Again, go to your mind, be in this special spiritual place that only a few of us know about. Again, from a few weeks ago as we were in the Lord's Prayer, Gnostics wouldn't understand the need to pray for daily bread because they wouldn't value bread, it's from the world, and that would imply that your body and my body as we follow Jesus still had importance. So first, they denied the incarnation of Jesus. Then second, if you could put this next slide up, Mike, the false teachers claimed to have attained, and this is great, moral perfection through their superior enlightenment so they don't sin anymore. Now, if you're going to create a heresy and make it special and elite, for sure make it that you don't sin anymore. I mean, that just seems like the easiest way to cover that, right? 
Now, we'll see if you keep reading John, and many of us, again, were in the book of Revelation a few years ago, you see this same strain in the seven churches John is writing to in the early chapters of Revelation, where people there have, have created a Gnosticism that I don't sin anymore, and therefore what I do with my body doesn't matter. So there's a real heightened habit of sexual immorality being practiced because if your body doesn't matter and what you do doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you do with that body. This group doesn't seem to be heading down that path. They're just heading down more of the arrogant path of we don't sin anymore. Don't worry about it. We're part of an elite group. We have this special Holy Spirit knowledge, and you're not. So they look down on the rest of the Christians, like you and me, who don't get this special knowledge. They're kind of the Marines of Jesus, and you and I are the enlisted men and women of Jesus. So John, in his direct, humble, loving way, writes these three letters to confront this. And you can see these themes in every book that he writes because he's pushing back against his heresy in the late first century and everything he writes. He's going to stress the integrated reality of Jesus, Messiah, fully human and fully divine. I saw him. I was there with him. I saw his resurrected body. It was a body. It wasn't separate into some intellectual enlightened state. He's going to highlight that God is light. We just heard that phrase read. It gives you a little better understanding of why that's so important to John in John 1, 1 John 1. Because what they're hearing is God is evil and dark. He made a dark world. He's going to say, no, God is light. If you read through the Gospel of John, what does he say? Jesus is the light and the life. He's going to say that God is the radiant creator of a good world. And Jesus is a Messiah who died for us. He wasn't separate from some phantom. It wasn't Simon of Cyrene on the cross. It is Jesus. It's not a fancy knowledge. It's a revealed plan of God given to us for centuries, lived out in our time through the Messiah, Jesus. And in the passages this morning, you can hear these echoes back and forth. Again, I'd encourage you maybe this afternoon, lay open before you 1 John 1 and John 1. And you'll see again how he's really singing a song. I mean, these are not clear arguments early on. They're sort of oral tradition songs that he's singing over you and me. And words like word and flesh and know and touch and good and light and life are being used over and over again. There's even a callback to Genesis 1 because in 1 John 1 and John 1, we hear this phrase, in the beginning, from the beginning, which is again a callback to Genesis 1, which begins in the beginning. And what John is stating, if the word who was made flesh from John 1.14 in the womb of the Virgin Mary was the same eternal son of the Father way back at Genesis 1 before the dawn of time. And he's the agent of creation. The word of life did not merely come into existence at Bethlehem. He already existed from the beginning. 1 John 1, John 1, Genesis 1. It was this everlasting word that becomes the human Jesus. Divine son and human Jesus. There's no separation from the two. Fighting these lies for John is super important because it's denying what he himself lived experience has watched and seen happen. Jesus, the Messiah, risen after dying on the cross. Another way to check some of this is, again, if you read the Gospel of John, how many have ever heard the seven I am statements of John? Where Jesus is saying, this is who I am, right? Jesus said, and John recorded these I am statements. 
Anybody remember a couple? It's just in your head to a couple. Do, are those some sort of special intellectual statement that you don't understand? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Is that out of the realm of you being able to understand? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. John is coming to a people who are being lied to, saying, wait, no, it's not a special knowledge. It's a, it's a son of God born to die. Word become flesh for you and I to have relationship. So two major organizing principles then as we look at the book that would be helpful again if you put this slide up. Mike, thank you. Insights into who God is drive the understanding of the book. The first you heard, God is light. 1 John 1, 5. And then the second, 1 John 4, God is love. Can you see and understand the contrast of God is light because they've been told God is dark and evil and God is love because they're living in arrogance and not loving their brothers and sisters. He's going to tell them later, they'll know you're Christians. People will know you're Christians by your, does he say, by your special enlightened knowledge. No, anybody heard that verse before? What does he say? They'll know you're Christians by your love. Oh, that's why it's so important to him. And those two principles, again, help us understand this simple outline. You see, walking in God's light, practicing God's truth, living in God's love, and sharing God's victory. This would be a simple way, sorry, go to the next slide, to understand how the book is organized. Now, with this simple contextual framing, you can see why these... Verses are outlined this way. Trudy, can I grab from you the sheet? With that intro, here again these verses, and you might, it'll come, you'll begin to understand what we're being handed from John. Verse one, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's Jesus. So these real experiential things. That life was made manifest. It's not hidden. And we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, it's not a special knowing. You can know it. It was made manifest to us. We're giving it to you. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so you may have fellowship with us not separation. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is the light, and in him is no darkness at all. And then we get what's called these five conditional clauses. If then, if then. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. Have you ever heard that verse in hearing the reading of 1 John and wondered, why is John starting if we say we have fellowship walking in darkness? That's why, because people are saying, I can walk in darkness, it doesn't matter, I'm not sinning, and I still have fellowship with God. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we do have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. If we say we have no sin, there's a whole group of people saying they have no sin. He is faithful and just, or excuse me, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
Then verse 9, this verse that we proclaim in absolutions over you all a lot, over each other. If we confess our sins, what good news? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Even in these first 10 verses, he is walking down his whole argument and answering these conjectures from these heretics. No, you, you, the world is hard. And yes, you might be tempted to leave and you might be struggling with your sin, but the answer is not to pretend you're not sinning. The answer is not to find some pretend elite intellectuality. It's actually to turn to Jesus and confess to him and then live in fellowship with one another. So two reasons this could be important this week as you go to walk, hopefully, around pools and go to work and do summer jobs and vacations. First, a reminder that Jesus in the flesh, this thing that John is presenting and arguing for, what it really knew, meant to know Jesus, means that the life you and I live really matters. It gives earth dignity and your work dignity and his father's creation dignity. If Jesus didn't really come as a divine being to earth and the earth is evil, then it doesn't matter. The seven-day week, apparently God didn't care. But that's not what we believe, is it? It's not what we believe in Genesis. It's not what we believe from what we just did in the Lord's Prayer. It's not what we believe from the simplicity of bread and grapes that we use for communion. What we believe is the world fundamentally matters. He's actually committed to it. He's instilled life and beauty in it. So Jesus, this thing John is arguing for in the flesh, matters to you this week because it makes your tomorrow purposeful. Monday morning matters because it mattered to Jesus. Secondly, Jesus in the flesh then doesn't just make our life matter, it makes our life as Christians matter and our witness matter because it's the proving ground of our faith, heaven's citizens. That's what we're to be. We're not removed from the world even though it's hard. And I get why the Gnostics would want to be removed. We've talked about that again a lot the last three or four weeks. But what John is saying is, you know what? To bear witness for Jesus means people need to know we are Christians by our love. And he's going to argue that that love has to be an active, embodied, incarnational love because it's just what Jesus did, an incarnated body. So there's utter dignity coming to you from this letter. There's importance and purpose coming to you from what we're going to look at this summer. Lastly, Jesus, fully human, fully divine, addresses the, the deepest problem in the world, which is death and sin. You and I are all going to die. And what John is saying is because of Jesus, not a phantom, I love that theory. Not a phantom. How did they explain that? Jesus on the cross. Jesus out of the empty tomb. Death has been broken. So you can see why John, the disciple Jesus loved, is going to write about this again and again and again. The problem of humanity has been solved. What, what Jesus is being presented as is so false, John's going to sit down and write and write and write. So as I pray, you might want to think about your week a little bit and ask yourself, where this week do I really need to be reminded that Jesus is with me in the week? That this week, Jesus in the flesh mattered to him like it matters to me.
And as I pray for you, maybe you offer that time this week. Could be, again, something you know is happening. Could be something as you've transitioned into summer and you're still sorting out or concerned about. Let's just take some minutes and offer to Jesus what he gave to us this week. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you again for John and for the gift of these words and the reminder that we are integrated beings, that you've given us minds and hearts and bodies to love you. Thank you again that because you came, word become flesh, because you created, that we can take seriously this world and offer it to you seriously and say, Lord, here's what we face this week. Here's the desires we have, the joys we have, maybe the tensions or stresses we have. Maybe we know what our summer's going to be. Maybe we don't. Lord, just together we ask you and offer you to be in it and over it. I pray that come Labor Day, everybody here will have known you in a deeper way in their Monday through Sunday than they would have because we've looked at these words from the Apostle John. Thank you again that you loved him. And it's so clear that love changed his life. We ask that we would be changed by your love this summer. In your holy name, amen. I invite you to either keep meditating or praying in your heart, or you can lift your voices in song with me. Spread. 